Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew as we continue to lear learn through the genealogy of Jesus, uh, starting in, in Matthew 12, if you would like to follow along. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ab Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Well, what a joy it is to be with the body of Christ. Once a week just feels so inadequate for the giving and receiving of encouragement, admonishment, and for fellowship with other believers. Beloved, do not try to live the Christian life on your own. Yes, God gives us all that we need. Yes, Scripture, scripture is wholly adequate for all godliness and all of life. Yet, God has designed us and prescribed for us in Scripture that we should live in community. Part of God giving us all that we need is giving us the congregation of the saints. So utilize that precious gift that God has given us in this local body of Christ. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Check in on one another. Call, text, drop by, email. Invite individuals or families to your home for a meal or for a game night. Make time to meet up for, for coffee, to catch up on life, or to ask advice, or to get wisdom on something you are facing in your life. Be vulnerable enough to share your needs with one another, your worries, your struggles. Be the body of Christ. Be a family, and not just on Sundays. Okay, we can consider that rabbit trail adequately followed. And I ask that you would now join me in prayer uh, before we get to the Word in today's sermon. Father, I do pray that you would grow us and unite us into a family. That we would learn what it is to serve one another, to encourage one another, to uplift one another, to protect one another. Father, bind us together in closer bonds than just weekly meetings, but that our care for one another and our attention to one another will be so much more, so much greater. Father, this morning as we look to Your Word, I pray that You would Conform us to Christ through it, Lord. That as we collectively come together to worship, this, this shared experience that we do join with every week, that you, you'd use it in each of our lives to draw us closer to Christ, to give us a common understanding, a common passion. That you'd be working on the same types of things in our lives that we could be an encouragement one to another. Father, let nothing of me that might be confusing or inaccurate, let none of me then that come through, Lord. Anything I might say or inflection that might be off, if it is not honoring to Your Word, let it be forgotten. But the truth of Your Word and the meaning of the text, let it pierce our hearts, Lord. Be glorified in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I hope you are as excited as I am to cover yet another large section of the genealogy that Matthew gave us for Jesus, the final section. Last week we covered the, the Davidic line from the time of the divided kingdom all the way through to the deportation into Babylon. This week we are going to cover the line of Christ from that point of the deportation all the way to the Incarnation. 
And since there isn't much about in the Old Testament Scriptures or in the Bible about most of these men, we're going to actually turn and look to the dreams and the visions and interpretations given to Daniel, Daniel while in exile in Babylon. So I think it is those dreams and interpretations and visions that will help us understand what God was doing. These will help us see what God promised to do and then be able to track in real time in history what God actually did to bring about what He had promised to set the stage for the arrival of His Son, the Messiah of Israel. As we look to what God revealed to Daniel about what He was going to do in the rise and the fall of nation after nation, we're going to be more concerned about what God was bringing about, what He was ultimately accomplishing, than we are about every detail of symbol or exact interpretation. Some of it is, is very clear. that Daniel has given very clear instruction of what these things meant, while other things divide even conservative scholars. But I think there is one thing that is clear throughout all of what God revealed to Daniel. God, through Daniel, was revealing everything that was going to take place to set the stage, the world stage, for the arrival of the One who is the culmination of all of history. That is, the visions were not given to veil or to obscure. They were given to encourage God's people, to show them what was going to happen. To help them carry on in a very dark and trying time. These dark days that were ahead for them. Judah was in the midst of a very difficult time. In His mercy, God let them know what they should expect moving forward and ultimately the victory that would be coming. So God was merciful in speaking to and through Daniel. The rise and fall of nation after nation would bring about the arrival of the true king and the fulfillment of God's kingdom and creation. All the evil that God's people would yet face, and there was still a lot of it before them, it all had a purpose. It was bringing about a specific end. On the other side of the trials they would face at the hands of four different nations, God was going to establish His kingdom with His chosen king on the throne. His people would know a restored relationship with God. True peace and victory over sin and death. The wicked nations that warred against God's people, that persecuted them, that killed them, would not escape justice. God would deal with them, just as He would deal with rebellion and faithlessness of His own people, either in the death of His Son or in their complete destruction. That destruction came time and time again at the hands of a new nation rising to power, yet still serving the purposes of God's design. When Jerusalem fell to Babylon, most of the people were carried off to a foreign land. In the end, after three different times of taking people from Jerusalem and Judea to Babylon, the only people that were left were the very poorest of the poor in the land. At that time, it really seemed as though the promises that had been made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to David, it seemed like those promises had failed. Because the wrath of God had been poured out onto the sons of Israel. The patience of God had finally run out because of their continual idolatry and the hardness of their hearts. Their refusal to listen to prophet after prophet as God warned them and called them back to Himself. And we see that the promised land had been taken from them. The beautiful city, the temple, and the ark of the Lord all gone. The favor of the Lord seemed like a distant dream never to return. Because what hope did a people who were already few in number have when the source of their strength, their God, had turned against them? Well, that's one question I want us to think about this morning. Is did God abandon His people? 
Did God finally get angry enough over the sins of Israel that He turned His back on them and left them to destruction? Did God forsake His promise to Israel? Or was even this great disaster part of His plan? Was the judgment and removal of Israel from the promised land part of how God was preparing the way for the fulfillment of His plan of redemption for mankind in the coming of His Son to earth? Well, we are going to finish our study on the genealogy of Jesus this morning. We're going to look at what was taking place during the last 14 generations listed in Matthew. Up until this point, we know quite a bit about the men that were listed in the genealogy of Jesus or the women that were listed. We know quite a bit about them. But we know very little about most of the men in this last list, this last section of the genealogy. But even though the names are not commonly known and they're not present in the Old Testament, we know that the Jews were absolutely meticulous in keeping records of genealogies especially of prominent households. And there is no more prominent household in Israel or Judah than the household of David. Matthew absolutely would have had access at that point in the first century to this kind of information before it was destroyed. Before it was destroyed because of fear of yet another Jewish revolt a generation after the Lord walked this earth. If you look carefully at this last section of list of names, you may notice that in fact we don't have 14 names as it says we do. That we don't have three lists of 14, we have two lists of 14 and a list of 13. I actually believe that it was intentional. I don't think Matthew forgot how to count. I believe Matthew actually intended that Jeconiah would be included both in that middle list of 14 as part of the kings of the divided kingdom and that last 14 as part of the line of Christ absent a throne. Jeconiah, much like David, is a prominent figure in Israel in a time of, of great change in the nation. Jeconiah was called childless, and yet Scripture speaks elsewhere that he had children. Because he was childish, childless, in the respect that he did not have a son to be able to sit on the throne after him. As far as the line of kings, he was the last one. There was no king following him. Yet he did have children, and he was able to carry on the line of the Messiah, though without a throne for that line to sit on. So, what happened to the people of Judah after they had been forced out of the promised land? What was to become of them? Many, if not most, clung more tightly to their identity as the people of God. It was during this time that they became known as the Jews. Surely some of them would have faded into the culture and become just like the lost tribes of Israel, never to be found again. Instead of getting lost in the culture, though, most of them fought to maintain their religion, fought to maintain their unique way of life. We get a glimpse of that struggle, a glimpse of faithful Jews in captivity in the books of Daniel and Esther. Among those who remained faithful to God, some achieved measures of success and prominence within the governments of Babylon and Persia. On multiple occasions, it was the actions of these Jews who kept their identity as Jewish, yet interacted and became prominent in this pagan kingdom, it was these Jews that were able to preserve the lives of their nation, even while they were all spread out so far from home. Some interesting things happened while these people were in captivity. A people who once were so prone to search after idols and pagan worship and model themselves after the nations around them, now that they were in a foreign land surrounded by pagans and idols, they began to cling tightly to the God of their fathers. They began to cling tightly to the traditions 
of their fathers. Before, while they lived surrounded by the blessings of God, they continually turned away from Him, they spurned Him, they spat in His face. Yet now, when they were torn away from those blessings, from the land and the promises, many turned to His law and attempted to live by it, even though they were now separated from the temple and their ability to make sacrifices. It was also during the time of the deportation that we see the establishment of a network of synagogues everywhere there was a Jewish population. This was actually a stark change in Jewish religious practice, but it would prove very important and influential by the time we get to the New Testament, the life of Christ and the life of the early church. It is there in these synagogues that the Jews would meet to teach the law of God, to preserve their Jewish way of life, and to gather on the Sabbath for worship. These synagogues, while they weren't mentioned in the Old Testament, are found virtually everywhere there is a Jewish population by the time we get to the New Testament. Of course, the deportation would not last long in the relative lifespan of a nation. Seventy years after the first Jews were taken to Babylon, everyone who had the desire to return to Jerusalem and Judea was allowed. The first group of Jews that would return to Jerusalem would do so during the reign of Cyrus the Great of Persia and under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who is, as Matthew records for us, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Jeconiah. These three generations, at least, are found in the Old Testament elsewhere. Jeconiah we met last week as the king that had offered himself up to Babylon as a captive once they came in power. His son, Shealtiel. And if you look up everywhere that these three generations are mentioned in the Old Testament, you might find yourself confronted with a bit of a riddle. In Matthew and in Ezra 2, Shealtiel is listed as the father of Zerubbabel. Yet, if you look in 1 Chronicles, he is listed as his uncle. But this isn't something that should concern you as there are a few different ways that this can easily be explained. The most convincing explanation I have heard is that Shealtiel would have died before having a male son, died before having an heir. So then his brother would have married his widow, as was according to the law, to raise up a son in, his, in Shealtiel's name so that his portion would not be cut off from the land. In that way, Zerubbabel would both be Shealtiel's biological nephew and his legally and biblically defined son and heir. Whereas we have already seen that same scenario play out, or at least that same scenario was supposed to play out within the genealogy of Jesus when you looked at the sons of Judah and Tamar. As always... Apparent contradictions or confusions between biblical texts remain confusing and a possible source of doubt only as long as you let them remain a contradiction in your mind. Beloved, we do not have to be afraid that we are going to discover something in Scripture that has no answer. Don't torture yourself by having a question and something that causes doubt. Don't torture yourself by leaving it in the realm of doubt fearing that perhaps that will be the thing that will undo your trust in Scripture. Look into the matter more deeply. Ask questions. Do some research. See how Christians have responded to that question in the past. Trust me, you will not be the first person to discover an un unresolvable contradiction in Scripture and somehow put the whole system into doubts. It is the Word of God. It is able to stand up to your and to anyone else's deepest scrutiny. Of course, you might need some help in understanding how these things work together. And that's okay. None of us know all of this on our own. Well, once the Jewish exiles, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, 
Once they returned to Jerusalem, they began work immediately to restore the temple, to rebuild the temple. They were determined to reestablish the proper worship of the Lord and to reclaim Jerusalem in His name. Later on, Ezra and Nehemiah would each lead a group of refugees back to the Holy Land. The first to finish the work on the temple and to teach anew the law of God, to be able to give a sense for the God's Word. The latter, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to warn the people not to neglect the law of God. But from the last, or from the time of Nehemiah until the time of Messiah, there would be a consistent Jewish presence in Judea. After the dedication of the walls in Jerusalem in 445 B.C., everything in Judea, the people, the temple, and the law of God was in place for the coming of Messiah. God would use the next four and a half centuries to prepare the world, to prepare the rest of the world. And Daniel is going to help us understand what was about to take place. Daniel was one of the first of Judah to be taken to Babylon. While he is there, God raised him into a place of prominence within the court of the Babylonian kings. He was placed over all the magi and the wise men in the kingdom. He was granted this position because he was able both to recall and to interpret a very troubling vision that Nebuchadnezzar had had. In this dream, as well as a number of other visions given to Daniel, it is these dreams that will help us understand what God had in mind for the nations of the world leading up to the arrival of the Messiah. In Daniel 2, we read of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He saw a great statue with a golden head, with chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its feet of iron and clay. As he was looking upon this great statue, it was destroyed by a stone that was not cut by human hands, that was thrown upon and crushed the statue. And that stone grew into a mountain and covered the whole of the earth. Daniel was given that interpretation for that vision in Daniel 2, 36-45. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crumbles, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw at the feet of the toes, partially of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom will be partially strong and partially brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix together with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God is made known to the king. What shall be after this? The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. In Daniel 7, we read about a vision that was given to Daniel during the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. In this dream, four great and strange beasts exercised dominion over the earth, each in its turn. The first was like a lion with eagle's wings. The second, a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. The third, a leopard with four heads and four wings on its back. The fourth, was something new, something terrifying and dreadful with iron teeth and ten horns. 
After seeing these beasts, Daniel recorded this in Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Daniel said, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the book was opened. I looked before the sound of the great words the horn was speaking, and I looked, and the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and it was given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Much like the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had before, this vision shows four different kingdoms obtaining dominion in the land. One by one, each in its turn, they would rise to power only to be defeated by another. Ultimately, this pattern was broke by divine intervention. Nation after nation would rise and fall, and then God, in the end, would establish a kingdom that would never fall. A kingdom that would have an everlasting dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. Of course, there is a lot of speculation tied up with the identity of these four kingdoms mentioned in both Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Faithful conservative scholars, for the most part, believe these visions are both speaking of the same kingdoms, of Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome. Well, that seems plausible enough because it is Rome who is in power when the kingdom of God is inaugurated in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. But there are also other scholars who believe the kingdoms represented are Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. This view was popularized for some time by scholars of a more liberal bent who did not believe that this vision was prophetic, did not believe in an early dating of this text. They argued that the fourth kingdom so perfectly pictured the nature and character of the Greek Empire under Alexander that it must have been written after those events. Interestingly, there are some conservative scholars who do believe in an early dating, believe that these visions were divinely given by God, and yet have the same argument about the accurate description and the picture of Greece. And then they agree that Greece must be the fourth kingdom. Well, I, t I tend to see the first in interpretation as more plausible, with Rome as the fourth kingdom, though I must admit I have read some scholars' work on making a case for Greece being the fourth kingdom, and they have some pretty good arguments as well. But here's the thing. I am not so much worried about which kingdom is which, at least in our discussion right now, I'm not worried about that as much as I'm worried that we understand that Daniel is speaking of the first coming of Christ. The initiation of the kingdom of God that comes. This, this stone that crushes the feet of the statue and then grows out. That is, that is Christ that is coming, His life, His ministry. Not the future eschatological second coming that we are still looking for, longing for, and awaiting. Well, is the kingdom of God here, or is it still far off? Is Christ reigning now, or is He waiting for a future time when He'll be able to sit on His throne? Are all peoples, nations, and languages serving Him now? These are very important questions. They're going to greatly affect how we live here and now. 
And I am convinced that God gave Daniel these visions so that God's people would be able to understand and to know when the Messiah would come. Even though the nation as a whole rejected him, there were those who were faithful and who were searching for the Messiah. There were those who were able to read the signs of the times, understand what was happening and where they were in the history that God had promised was about to take place. They understood the purpose of the visions given to Daniel. Well, the Scripture help us out here? Does the New Testament help us out here? Well, what was the message of John the Baptist? He was the precursor to the Messiah, preparing the way for the Messiah. What was his message? We read Matthew 3, 2. His message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After John was arrested, Jesus continued with that same message. Matthew 3.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later on, when Jesus was accused of casting out evil demons, evil spirits by Beelzebub, how did Jesus respond? Well, in Matthew 12.28, he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, was it by the Spirit of God that Jesus cast out demons? How else? By His word then, the kingdom of God had come among them. And we could go on, we just don't have the time. Well, what about the reign of Christ? Is He on the throne Or is he waiting for a future victory before he has the right to rule? Well, to ask that question, I would say, what was it that so inflamed the high priest on the day of Christ's crucifixion that he tore his clothes and had no more patience to hear anything other than crucify him? When he asked if Jesus was the Christ, this is how Jesus responded in Matthew 26, 58. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In a sermon given in Acts 2, Peter said the following after relaying how Jesus had been delivered up to death by the same people he was talking to. Yet now he was sitting at the right hand of God. In Acts 2, 32-36, Peter said, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Does Jesus have a dominion right now? Is He reigning right now? Well, before He ascended into heaven and after His resurrection, what was the basis that Jesus gave for being able to send His disciples out confidently into the land? In Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How much authority does Christ have right now? All authority. Where does Christ have authority? In heaven and on earth. Daniel was given visions to prepare God's people for when he was going to send his son to defeat their enemies and to set up his kingdom on this earth. Well, we may not see that kingdom in the same glory in which it will one day be displayed, but make no mistake, that kingdom was inaugurated at the first coming of the Son of God. Well, another vision was found in Daniel 8. This one gives us a much clearer picture of what was about to happen in Babylon and later in Judea. 
In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, David had a vision of a, or sorry, Daniel had a vision of a ram and a goat. There was a ram with two horns, one that was larger than the other. It was budding westward, northward, southward, and nothing could stand before it. Out of the west came a male goat that sailed over the surface of the whole earth without touching its feet to the ground. This goat had one prominent horn between its eyes, and it became enraged with a two-horned ram, and it hurled it to the ground and trampled on it. The one-horned goat then magnified itself, but as soon as it became mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place came up four prominent horns toward the four winds of heaven. Well, Daniel was told the meaning of this vision. He was told that the two-horned ram were the kings of Media and Persia. The depiction accurately shows the greater strength of Persia over Media. It aptly described the way that the kingdom of Persia spread and dominated throughout the land. The empire of Persia at that time was simply massive. Of course, then the goat represented the kingdom of Greece. Its first large horn, the first king of Greece, or Alexander. Think of the description of that goat. It was flying across the land. How could you better describe Alexander and his, and his army con conquering such a vast empire in the space of just a few years? He took over Persia and more in the space of like six years. Indeed, Alexander did become obsessed with Persia, driven mad by Persia, pursued Darius to the ends of the earth in order to kill him, to snuff out that empire. The four horns that replaced the one horn represented the four kingdoms that arise out of the kingdom of Greece. If you remember history, Alexander did not name a successor, did not have an old enough heir to claim the power for himself. And upon his death, his kingdom immediately broke up into four and was warred upon by his leading generals. Two of those kingdoms would play a prominent role in the future of Judea. They're spoken of by Daniel as the king in the south and the king in the north. These two nations warred against one another. They would not find peace. And they left the beautiful land, Judea, Israel, caught in the middle between two powers. The kingdom of Persia played a huge role in the nation of Israel. The Persian king that overthrew the Babylonians was Cyrus the Great. He was the vessel used by God to bring the Jews back to the promised land after generations in captivity in a foreign land. These Persian kings not only allowed Jews to go back to Judea, but they supported them in their efforts to rebuild the temple and the city, along with its walls. Under Persian rule, the Jews were able to enjoy over a hundred years of relative peace, wherein they were able to freely exercise their religion and to establish a real Jewish identity that had looked different than it had before in the land of Judea. While the Persian Empire helped the Jewish people to establish their national identity, the goat in Daniel's vision, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, would change the face of the known world. Alexander took the world by storm. There's no other way to describe it. His empire was the first Western empire to exercise such broad influence in the East. He brought with him a deep passion for Greek culture, which had already peaked under the likes of Socrates and Aristotle. Under Alexander and his successors, the world experienced a unique and at that time unheard of phenomenon known as Hellenization the establishment of a single unifying culture and language across nations and across continents. Greek culture, its literature, its philosophy, its art, its language were established everywhere the Greek army went. Cities and nations were reshaped in the image of Greece. 
It didn't take long for that proud horn, Alexander, to be broken off. The man never got to enjoy his new kingdom. After the death of Alexander, two of the four kings that came out of his empire would play a part in the destiny of Jerusalem. Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucus in Syria. As I said before, these are the, the kings of the north and the kings of the south that Daniel described in this vision. It was under the reign of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, who was a Seleucid king, that the desecration of abomination would take place. This was after the north, king of the north and the king of the south warred over and fought over the beautiful city. When he took control, he no longer allowed them some relative autonomy that they had enjoyed under Ptolemy. He forbade any worship of the true God within the land. And not just forbade them from the true worship, he placed a statue of Zeus within the temple in Jerusalem. And then pigs were sacrificed on that altar. He forbade all the worship, as I had mentioned before. Ultimately, his terrors and atrocities against the religion of the Jews was so great that it inspired rebellion out of zeal for God, out of zeal for their traditions. And Judas Maccabeus led a rebellion that freed Israel from the Greek occupation. His brother would retake Jerusalem, and in that corresponding eight-day celebration, the oil for the lamps that was supposed to only last one day lasted for eight, thus establishing the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. Of course, the Jewish independence would not last for very long, and Rome would come and build on what Alexander had started. All of these events had a profound influence on the world that Jesus would experience as he walked this earth. God had reshaped the political and the cultural face of the entire known world to prepare it for the coming of his Son. All of this had a major influence on the spread of the gospel. It allowed for the advancement of his kingdom to every tongue, tribe, and nation. To everyone that would turn in faith and serve the great king of kings. Briefly, just to look over some of those things. Because of the captivity in Babylon, the Jews clung more closely to their religious and national identity. In the first century, we don't see a Jewish people pursuing all sorts of obvious idolatry and paganism, we see them instead becoming self-righteous about how well they served God. When the Persian king let them go back to Jerusalem, they went back speaking Aramaic. But when the Greeks took over, the Greek language became the language of business. Because they were deprived of Jerusalem and the temple, the network of synagogues established in all the cities and became the center of Jewish religious life. Because of the Persians, as I said, the common language was changed. Because of the Greeks, there was easy movement throughout the land where everybody was able to understand each other in a common language of, of Greek because the Greeks were so fanatical about their culture it made it easier to move from nation to nation, to travel from one place to another. The expectation of the people for a long-expected Messiah was largely based on their nation's history and their desire for freedom from outside influence. They had memory of the recent freedom they had experienced from Greece, and they believed the Messiah was going to come and do the same thing for Rome. They knew about the visions of God. That God would establish a kingdom for His people. A kingdom that would crush the kingdoms that were there before. And that would give them an eternal dominion. What they did not realize, and most of them did not accept, was that the kingdom of the Messiah was coming to establish was not of this world. It would not follow the usual pattern of this world. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom that would be greater than the kingdoms of the earth, yet its dominion would first 
manifest itself in the hearts and souls of his people. All authority belonged to this king, yet his kingdom would first appear small and insignificant, even though it would grow to cover to the ends of the earth. And so, we have the shaping of the earth and the preservation of the line of David until God's appointed time. As Matthew wrote, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. The royal line was preserved. Jesus, the, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, born of the woman Mary by the Holy Spirit, legal heir to Joseph, last of the long line, was father David. The stage was set. The world was made ready and everything was about to change. Well, how, how great a God we serve. How mighty a King that has caused us to become children of the Most High. God worked within the nation of Israel to bring about His redemptive plan for mankind in the line of the Messiah. And He worked through the evil and pagan nations to reshape the very face of the earth to prepare a way before Him. Nothing is too great for our God. He guides the hearts of kings like a boat on a stream. No king and no nation has ever been or will ever be so powerful that God is not able to use them according to His purpose. Even when that purpose is to crush them like a clay pot beneath a boulder. What Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, and Caesar did not recognize is that they were nothing more than tools in the hand of a God that they did not know. He used them to fulfill His promises. That His plan of salvation, established before the foundation of the earth, might come about in the exact way of His choosing. Even in the darkest hour of the nation of Judah, when its greatest city and its temple were destroyed, the promises of God were never in question. His discipline was severe. Even when His wrath was all that the people could see, His love and mercy were already in motion. They were already making the way ready for the salvation of His people. For the salvation of all who would believe. The Jew and the Gentile. God never abandoned His promises to the fathers of Israel. He changed the face of the earth to bring about His promise of redemption, to make them a blessing to all the nations of the earth that He promised to Abraham so long before. The world was changed in order that the eternal kingdom of God might be established. And though it might seem right now that Christianity doesn't have the influence you might expect or think, but look through the course of history and the amount of time that that small, insignificant movement went from Jerusalem to Judea to all the cities of the known world, the Roman Empire, and literally has covered the world. No, not everyone is Christians, but Christianity came from almost nothing to being a dominant religion and a dominant force in establishing culture and society in this world and nations across the world. It truly is a wonder of what God has done. God used severe discipline and extreme hardship to prepare Israel for the coming of His Son. Everyone who accepted His Son as the Son of God, received the eternal kingdom that they, as their reward. Those who wouldn't received the final judgment of God and they were cut off. Beloved, often God does this with us. He brings us to the cliffs of despair in order to prepare us to receive His Son. I want you to hear me on this. Do not weep for the man that God brings to nothing in order to save him. Do not weep for the one who God has brought low 
in order to make him ready and willing to accept his son and the salvation that is promised. Weep instead for the man that God allows to run down the easy path to his eternal destruction. Do not recoil against God or respond in rage when He disciplines you. He is keeping you from the destruction that you want to go to, that you naturally are inclined to go to. It is the love of God that disciplines His people to bring them to repentance. It is the love of God that draws people to Himself, that breaks them of every idol that they are holding on to, that they will cry out in faith to Christ as He is the only one for them. We weep instead for those that we are tempted to be jealous of, those who live sinful lives and receive ease and plenty in this life. Weep for them. They have their reward now. They have nothing to look forward to. May God do all that is required in our lives and the lives of those we love to make us ready to accept His Son, to bring us always closer to Him, Praise God for the extreme lengths that He has gone to to prepare the world and to prepare each of us for His Son. May we see all that He has done in history and in our lives and marvel at why such a great and mighty God would care about such a wicked and insignificant people like us. All glory to God. Father, we give You all glory all honor, all praise. Father, we know that nothing good is from us. We would never on our own turn to You. We never on our own would have repented and turned away from our sin. We would have run headlong into destruction. Father, I'm thankful. I praise You that You discipline those You love as a father, His son. Father, draw us to You. May whatever will make us more like Christ fall heavy upon us. Be that blessing or be that something that will crush us into repentance and faith. Pray these things in Christ's name.